Good morning, Highland Community Church. We're glad that you have joined us in worship. I want to read a little bit from God's inspired and errant word. Maybe a little sermon before the sermon. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead Christ followers, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so we're commanded by God, whether we like our politicians or dislike our politicians, to remember them in prayer. We're about to have a new president, a new Congress, new Senate. We, we have these representatives in Senate and the president, and we are commanded to lift them up in prayer, and we are commanded as Christ followers to lead a peaceful, godly, and dignified life. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father God, uh, it matters not, according to your inspired and errant word, whether we voted for certain politicians or we chose not to. Father, you tell us that we are to show respect, we are to be dignified, we are to be peaceful, and we are to pray. And so, Father, we pray for the president-elect, we pray for the new senators, for the new representatives in the House, those who have been there before and those who are brand new. We ask, Father, that you would give them wisdom that maybe they've never acquired, never known, we ask, Father, that as they lead our nation, we would return to a nation under God. Clearly, Father, it is observable to see that we have strayed far from biblical truths. We have strayed far from ethics and morals. We have strayed far from you. We ask, Father, that you might give those in positions of authority just a greater glimpse of who you are. If they don't know you as Savior, may they come to know you as their personal Savior and Lord. May they make decisions that are honoring to you that return our nation towards you. Father, we don't get to control, except through our vote, who is in positions of authority but we entrust them to you, and in obedience to you, we vow to pray for these leaders. And we ask that you would use them mightily for your kingdom. And Father, as we look at your word in 1 John, take your word and apply it to our lives, that we might be those dignified, peaceful, godly Christ followers that we read about in 1 Timothy 2. Take your word, apply it to us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. During my middle and high school years, my family lived in Onondaga County, upstate New York, near Syracuse. And in 2011, there was a court case that made national news that came out of Onondaga County. The judge was Judge Walsh, and he sentenced 
a 15-year-old to the maximum sentence and a 16-year-old to the minimum sentence for exactly the same crime. Let me give us the details. The 15-year-old was named Anthony. The 16-year-old was named Skyler. And they came upon a septuagenarian, a man who was 72 years old. They knocked him to the ground. They drew guns on him, guns that were made to look like high-caliber pistols, yet in reality, they were actually BB guns. They broke the man's glasses and then rifled through his pockets and discovered that he had seven cents. They stole the seven cents. Well, because uh, there were eyewitnesses, all sorts of physical evidence left behind, the two, 15-year-old Anthony, 16-year-old Skyler, were quickly apprehended. The evidence against them was open and shut. It was airtight. And so Skyler, the 16-year-old, readily admitted to the crime. But 15-year-old Anthony denied that he was there, denied that he had done anything wrong, denied that he was a part of it. Judge Walsh, in several different ways, appealed to Anthony to confess the crime. Anthony refused. So then Judge Walsh sent out two verdicts. For the 15-year-old, he sentenced him to the maximum sentence for pushing down a 70-year-old and stealing seven cents. It turns out he was he was sentenced to two to six years in a juvenile center. The 16-year-old who readily confessed was given the most minimum sentence possible. Later on, some reporters asked Judge Walsh, were the divergent sentences because one readily confessed and the other denied even though all evidence was against him? Although Judge Walsh demurred a little bit, didn't directly answer the question, it became clear that that was the issue. One confessed and received a minimum sentence. The other continued to deny and received a maximum sentence. Now, I'm not here to argue the merits of Judge Walsh's decision, way above my pay grade. But it's clear that had Anthony confessed, he would have gotten a minimal sentence. That's not only true in the court case. In 2011 in Onondaga County, that's also true in the biblical text. The longer you and I harbor sin without confessing, agreeing with God and repenting, turning from our sin empowered by God's Spirit, the longer we harbor sin, the worse the consequences often become. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where David and Bathsheba are involved in an adulterous relationship to cover it up. David then mur murders Uriah. <coughs> it's a year before Nathan comes and confronts David. And you remember the consequences of walking around with this unconfessed, unrepentant sin for an entire year are staggering. God takes the child conceived in adultery. God says to David, his home life will never be peaceful again. His own son, Absalom, usurps his throne and tries to murder his father, David. Then he has a son, Amnon, rape one of his daughters, Tamar. His son, Absalom, murders Amnon, 
son murders son because of the rape, the devastation that points back to a year of unconfessed, unrepentant sin is overwhelming. And so the Bible tells us to confess our sin. Today's text says, if we say that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we claim that we have no sin, we actually make God out to be a liar because he says we do have sin and his word is not in us. Now, as you and I begin to talk about sin, let's just take a moment or two to have an overview of what the Bible says about sin. There are a number of biblical words for sin. Sometimes in English, we treat them all the same. That's actually inaccurate. In the Greek text, it's hamartan or hamartia that is used here. The Hebrew word is chata. This happens to be the word that many use for lots of different types of sin, probably incorrectly. But individuals say, well, sin is missing the mark. It's a picture of an archer who doesn't hit the bullseye. That actually is this word for sin, but that's not the only word for sin in the Bible. So what this word means is that there is a very specific bullseye that we have to hit with our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, our motives, even our inactivities. And if we're outside the bullseye, we miss the mark, we sin, we need to confess, agree with God, and we need to repent. That's the word used in the text. And if we say that we have not sinned, we're liars, and the truth is not in us. Verse 8, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us, because his word says that we have sinned. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all have fallen short. Of God's glory. Now, Scripture declares that you and I are sinners from conception. That's what Psalm 51 says. From conception, you and I are sinners. We inherit original sin. Adam's sin is imputed to us. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where God gave Adam, the first man, and Eve, the first woman, the Garden of Eden, a paradise. He said that they could eat and enjoy everything in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they cannot consume, because if they eat of the knowledge of good and evil, this tree, they will die. And you remember Satan in the form of a serpent saddles up to Eve, and he says, did God really say that you would die? <laughs> God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be just like God and you'll know the difference between good and evil. And so Eve naively was deceived and ate of the forbidden fruit. Then she gave some to Adam who didn't naively disobey. It says that he volitionally disobeyed. He disobeyed with his eyes wide open and that his sin is credited to us. Romans 5, 12, the first Adam, he ate of the forbidden fruit. We pay the consequences. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Adam's sin is imputed to us. 
and we think, wow, that's not fair. Adam ought to be accountable for Adam's sin. Leave me out of it. But before we dismiss imputation, let's remember the greater imputation is Christ to us. Christ went to the cross. He paid the penalty of sin, which is death. He died in our place. Then he defeated death and rose on the third day that if by faith we believe in Christ, receive him as Savior and Lord, (coughs) his righteousness is imputed to us. His righteousness covers us. So before we say imputation is unfair, we need to remember we don't only get the imputation of Adam's sin, but by faith we get the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now we may still push back and say, well, the original sin, we shouldn't get it. But see, God knows all things. He knows everything in the past. He knows everything in the future. He knows everything in the present. He even knows what we call middle knowledge. Middle knowledge is he knows the possibilities and he knows full well that if Adam had not been in the garden, but Jeff had been in the garden, I too would have eaten that forbidden fruit probably quicker than Adam did. And I hate to say it, but he knows that about you too. Maybe the timing would have been different, but every person in this room, every person who has ever walked this globe would have eventually disobeyed God had you been Adam and you would have eaten the forbidden fruit. So it is right for God to impute Adam's sin on us. And out of grace, out of mercy, out of generosity, out of love, he allowed his son to pay the penalty of our sin, to die, to rise again, to conquer death, to defeat sin, and through faith in Christ, for the righteousness of Christ to cover, to impute upon us. That's the grace of God. So all of us are born with a propensity to sin. We can see this if we go to the nursery. Let's suppose you volunteered in the nursery at Highland. If you do, thank you so much. And we have two toddlers there. We'll call them Jack and Jill. And let's say Jill is playing with her ball and she's minding her own business, having a good old time. And Jack spies the ball, moves in for the capture, grabs the ball and takes it as his own. Now they're two-year-olds and let's say Jill has an incredible vocabulary and Jill looks at Jack and says, oh, Jack, I was enjoying that ball, but I'm glad that you get to play with my ball. Would you do me a favor? When you're done playing with my ball, would you give it back so I too can enjoy it? That's what happens every week at Highlands Nursery. Now, if we were a lesser church, it might be something different. And of course, we are a lesser church. We know exactly what happened. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth and gnarling. There might even be the introduction of the twins, righty and lefty, when Jack still steals Jill's ball. Why? Because we all have a sin nature. We all have this tendency to act out in an inappropriate way. That's my tendency and And I have no doubt that it's the tendency of every person who has ever walked the face of the earth. So the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned, all of us are guilty 
of Adam's sin. We inherit his sin nature, original sin, and we volitionally act out that sin nature and we do sin. One quick last observation before we directly look at the text. From time to time, well-meaning, sincere Christ followers say something like this. All sin is equal in the eyes of God. It's an interesting statement that has truth and fallacy mixed in. It is true that all sin separates us from the righteousness of God. It is true that all sin makes us separated from God and needs to be atoned for, paid for, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But it is not true that all sin is at the same level as one sin to another. That is not true. Read the book of Leviticus and you'll see that there are all sorts of different responses by God to different sins. All sin is an affront to God. All sin is not an equal affront to God. I think of theologian Alvin Plantinga. He says this, all sin is equally wrong, but not all sin is equally bad. Acts are either right or wrong, either consonant with God's will or not, but among good acts, some are better than others. Among wrong acts, some are worse than others. That's why we see, for instance, murder being a potential capital offense. As early as Genesis 9, we even see it in the New Testament in Romans 13. Because murder takes the life of someone made in the Imago Dei. That's a pretty serious sin. Maybe a less serious, even silly sin, is if you root for the Vikings and the Bears. That's evidence of bad judgment, right? Go pack, go. Well, with this introduction of the doctrine of sin, I again want to look at the text. Verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. As a society, I think we minimize sin all the time and sometimes even within the church, we make excuses for sin. We say it's no big deal or everyone's doing it or, and then we say, this is the reason we did it because someone did this, we can respond this way and we make excuses for sin, but sin is an affront to God. We do it as a society. There is no doubt that some individuals have a propensity towards this sin or that. That's true for you. That's true for me. Every one of us has a propensity towards certain sins and others we're not really drawn to. And it's different for you than the person sitting next to you. And it's different for me. Maybe for some, the propensity is to abuse alcohol or substances. Maybe you have an addictive personality. And so what does society say? It says alcoholism is a disease. That's not helpful. While we may readily acknowledge that some have a propensity 
towards alcoholism. That is true. It's scientifically verifiable. That does not negate the fact that someone drinks, someone makes bad choices, someone doesn't get the help they need. It's a sin to abuse alcohol. Or what about the individual who looks at pornography? What does some Americans say? Oh, he's a red-blooded American, which means that she or he that's looking at the pornography on a regular basis, they're just normal. That's what a normal person does. And we normalize sin and we make an excuse for sin. Sometimes we blame it on our personality. And we say, well, my explosive anger, that's just who I am. I get angry. It's just who I am. No, my friend, that's who you were prior to Christ. But you remember in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so the Lord will agree that we have propensities towards certain sins. In this case, I'm talking about explosive anger, unrighteous anger. That may be our, our tendency. But when we came to Christ at age 4 or at age 44 or at age 104, when we came to Christ, behold, all things became new. The Holy Spirit entered into us. And for the first time, we can really be empowered by God to turn away from sin. Some of you have read Gary Chapman's book, Anger. I, I've read that alongside many, many individuals and couples. And some have been impacted by that book and, and through a lot of hard work, incrementally they've changed from explosive, sinful, exploding or implosive anger towards controlling themselves. But others have not made it the whole way through the book. They've given up or they made it through the book, but they've given up. They just kind of said, that's just who I am. My friend, if you know Christ, that's not who you are. We've settled. It's not who we are because the old is God. Behold, all things become new. That doesn't mean that just because we come to Christ, all things are reconciled and we have all right categories. No, it's hard work. It's prayerful. It's a lot of confession. It's a lot of transformation. It's a lot of change, but we can't give up. We need to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we fail to confess that we are sinners and admit that we are sin and we make excuses for our sin, what we really do is settle for cheap grace. We deny the work of Christ's spirit within us and we settle for cheap grace. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 6, 1 and 2 and verse 6? He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved 
to sin. We can't minimize sin. In this regard, I think of a story that Charles Wesley, he lived in the 18th century. He was a great hymn writer. Uh, His brother was a great preacher. And after a service, someone came up to Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, and said, she said, Charles, will you pray for me? I am a great sinner. And Charles looked at her very gently and pastorally. And he said, ma'am, I will pray for you. Let's pray now, for surely you are a very great sinner. And as soon as he said that, she was set off. What do you mean I'm a great sinner? Actually, all he did was quote her. But when he said it, she said, no way. I am not a great sinner. And when I begin to say that about myself, when you begin to say that about yourself, we do not understand even an inkling of the holiness of God. There is such a difference between the holiness of God and us that even the most vile individual on the planet is closer in character to you and me than we are to God. And that should cause incredible humility. It should cause us to stop being judgmental towards those kind of sinners. That doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable. It doesn't mean we don't hold the biblical standard up as a norm. It doesn't mean that we are not our brother's keeper. It doesn't mean that we don't do church discipline. All of that is true. We do all of that. But it does mean that there is an incredible spirit of humility that we get rid of the haughtiness and the pride and the slander and the gossip and the holier-than-thou attitude. And we recognize we indeed are great sinners. We are great sinners. And we are amazed by the grace of God that he would save a sinner like me. Yet another common excuse. We've got a lot of them, don't we? We say things like, well, everyone is doing it, whatever it is. Except that's not true for the God-man, Jesus Christ, of whom we are to imitate. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tested in all points and yet is without sin, and we are to imitate the Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, Jeff, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may present yourself to the will of God what is his perfect and acceptable will. And so when I'm tempted, maybe to join a couple guys to slander, I've got to say, Jeff, don't conform. When I'm tempted maybe to cheat on my taxes, Jeff, don't conform. When I'm tempted to minimize my sin, Jeff, don't conform. When I'm tempted to not give God the first fruits of my income or my life, Jeff, do not conform. When I'm tempted to push the things of God into secondary positions, third tertiary positions in my life, Jeff, do not conform. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are to agree with God. That's why it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
That word confess is homo legeo. Homo lego. Two words, you can hear it. Homo means the same as lego means to speak. To confess is to speak the same as God. That's what confession means. What would God say about my implosive or explosive anger? What would God say about the choices in my life? What would God say about a spirit of criticism within me? What would God say about thinking of those people rather than allowing the sermon to talk to this person? What would God say? That's what confess means. To say the same thing as God says. says. But confess always leads to repentance. That's the Hebrew word shuv, the Greek word metanoia. That's where generation 180, the name for the youth group means. Generation 180 is to turn 180 degrees away from sinful culture towards the Lord. That's what repentance is. It's to turn away from sin and towards the Lord. It's to agree with God, not to make excuses, and to ask God to transform our lives. The text is really queer. All of us have a sin problem. It's not someone else's problem, it's ours. I think of an account that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, He says in his congregation, he had learned of a man who claimed that he had gotten to the point of being perfect here on earth. I personally have known one or two of those individuals. Well, he had one in his congregation. He thought, well, I'm going to meet the guy. And he invited him over for dinner. And they were eating. And without warning, suddenly uh, Spurgeon picked up a full glass of water and he threw it in the man's face. So the man who's dressed to to have dinner out, is covered with water. And he got all red-faced and he got mad and he muttered a couple words that were inappropriate and he lost his temper. And Spurgeon said, ah, that dead man is alive. He had just fainted and I resuscitated him with water. Well, the dead man of sin is not even needing to be resuscitated in our lives. It just needs to be acknowledged, confessed, and attacked by the power of God's Spirit. And as I do so, I want to remember what we are told in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, that when we look at other people's sins, make sure, Jeff, that I remove the logs in my eyes before I'm worried about the specks in your eyes. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't hold one another accountable or that church discipline is passe or that we're not our brother's keeper. We are to do all of those. But it means that in a spirit of humility, I realize the depth of my sin first. As then I come alongside a brother or sister and I while dealing with my sin, while acknowledging my sin, help them to take the next step away from their sin as well. And we do the one another's together. 
and we become incrementally more and more and more like Christ. None of us, this side of eternity, ever grow out of 1 John 1, 8 to 10. Life verses. Because they have life application. They have daily application in all of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we readily confess that we are sinners. We readily confess that we say things, we do things, we think things, we have attitudes, we don't do things that we ought that miss the mark. Forgive us. Empower us by your spirit to not only agree with you, but to turn from our sin and toward your righteousness. Father, help us to keep daily, hourly, short accounts with you. And if we have slipped into a haughtiness, a self-righteousness, an arrogance, forgive us, be patient with us, and turn us from that sin as well. And Father, for our nation, we have, we have every sin in the book to turn from. Forgive us and allow your church, your Christ followers, to set a better and better and better example. As darkness is around, help us to shine as light for the nation's betterment, for our betterment, and for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.